You're listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate Lisa Leitner. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. Now back to the show with your host, Lisa. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Don't IEP Alone podcast. I'm Lisa Leitner. And with me today, I'm so happy I have a a guest today, Nicole Santiago from Family Adventures, and it's Adventures with two Ds, like ADD, get it, Um, (laughs) which she'll tell you about in in a little bit. But I'm just really excited. I've been following her now for um, several years and have been meaning to invite her on. And finally, it just happened very spur of the moment. So welcome, Nicole. Why don't you tell us, you know, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Sure. Thank you so much, Lisa. I've been following you for years. So this was such an honor for you to ask me to come on. I was actually an educator first, which I think is similar to your story. And I was a Spanish teacher and I loved it. And I was always pushing children with different learning needs into my classes because a lot of times my level one and two Spanish classes were doable and manageable. One thing interesting about me and in the DC area, we did not have Spanish speaking para educators. So I had to create most of my resources. I was the para and the general ed teacher. So for me, I was always kind of about helping kids and making sure they could access whatever it was I was teaching. And then I think as you, as you grow, you learn, you know, you're not teaching a a content, you're not teaching content, you're teaching kids. And I think that really stuck with me. And um, I just, became that general education teacher that always showed up at the IEP meetings. And then fast forward a few years, and my son was diagnosed with ADHD and some other learning differences. I now have three children who all have different sort of needs. They're not, you know, they're kind of low support needs, but they all have needs. And I realized I just wanted to make a more of an impact. So I changed my career. In 2019, I left the classroom and started working with kids more directly, looking into advocacy work, not really realizing it was a thing. You kind of helped me with that. I didn't, I didn't really realize I had advocated for my own three children at the school level, but when you're a parent versus when you're an advocate, it's very different. And I think that's really important. When you're an educated parent, it is actually much easier to advocate, but when you're a non-educated parent, it's hard. So yeah. So yeah, that's kind of my story. And I have ADHD too, and I'm pretty open about that and the challenges that come with it. I also do some educational therapy where I help kids with learning differences more directly. And I love that too. I love that work. Still being able to kind of connect one-on-one with kids. Great. So yes, I do feel like you and I have had similar journeys. And I know that when I started doing this, you know, it was, Kevin was an infant or toddler and Like, I just always thought, like, when I started doing it, I thought, well, I'm going to serve families like mine, you know, because I had already kind of engaged. He got his diagnosis at eight or nine months of age. So, you know, I was already kind of connected with some of the disability community and other similarly situated parents. But then as I started volunteering, I met families who were not at all like mine, you know, Mm -hmm. and was introduced to the, you know, the school to prison pipeline, which Mm -hmm. I didn't even know, like. I naively, you know, my privilege and whatever else, I had no idea that it even existed. But then, you know, serving families who live in poverty and have language barriers and have race race barriers, because it is a barrier in the IEP meeting and all these other different things. And that to me has been part of my most interesting work. And it's kind of like the work that I do that I'm the most passionate about. But I've noticed that you're kind of taking that on a little bit as well. 
And that's what I love when I see an advocate who's like, I'm like, yes, they're finally, you know, or not finally, but they're doing it because it's something that I feel like I preach a lot. So mm -hmm. I like to see other advocates jumping into the fray. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've did in that area? Yeah, sure. So it's funny because my mission is to keep kids neurodivergent and developmentally disabled kids out of the school to prison pipeline. It's something I noticed back in the classroom, just access to things, access to taking Spanish. If you're in a reading class, you can't take Spanish. And if you're a different color and you look different, it just, it was apparent. It was always like there was just separation with kids. So I've always wanted to fight to kind of break those barriers. And I, I'm really lucky in that one of my first clients here, and remember I moved when I, when I left DC area, I moved to San Antonio, Texas. And one of my first clients has been an advocate for years. She's a grandmother. She's advocated for two generations of children here in this area. So she brought me really big projects that really I didn't think I was ready for. I mean, I've done it all. So obviously I could handle it. But when you're a new advocate, you're still learning the laws. You want to make sure you're getting it right. You really want to check all the details. She, But she had faith in me. And so we are actually working with the San Antonio police right now. In fact, I'm meeting with, I brought in two other groups. So Any Baby Can is a group specifically for children with developmental disabilities in San Antonio. They've been operating for 40 years. And the executive officer is training with us. I also brought in the Autism Community Network, which is a local nonprofit. So two nonprofits and me, my small little business, I have two other people that help me. But we're all working together to really make this change for these cadets so that our training is on autism. I always put neurodivergence in there too, because I, I know the statistics around neurodivergent people in prison. I mean, I know that a lot of times it's undiagnosed. So they say like, oh, 30, 40%. I'm like, yeah, but if you knew the diagnosis, if they were diagnosed, it'd be much higher. So, and that starts at school. You know, you see the kids that can't sit down and that just trickles all the way up. So I feel really blessed to be working with this client with the SAPD open their doors immediately. My client was un unlawfully arrested. He should never have been arrested. In fact, called the district attorney that night within six hours and they, she released him. But there's just a lot of work to be done. There's things that shouldn't have happened that happened. I've watched the video. It's hard to watch. You know, I, I have just like this access to this, this space that I never knew I'd be in, but I am ready to fight. Like I'm ready. I'm here for this. Like I feel like kind of everything I've worked for has kind of aligned to doing this sort of work. And it's really amazing. It's hard work, but it's necessary. So I just really feel pretty blessed that I had that opportunity with this particular client. And I have other clients too that, you know, they all have needs. And But advocacy is much more than just showing up at the IEP meetings. I mean, showing up at the IEP meetings is great. I think it makes a difference. And I love that work. In fact, that is actually my easiest work now. Uh, just show up and do, I'm like, oh, IEP meeting, I can do that. Write a training for the San Antonio Police Department. Okay, this is a little different, you know? Write a complaint for the bar associate. Like I've, written, I've done so many different things, like complaints for the police. Like I've just done so much different work as an advocate, which I think we don't realize how broad it can be. I mean, I've gone to Austin, you know, we had the school um, vouchers that have come up, these savings accounts in Texas, where they're going to be pulling public money and then for private schools, but then a lot of children with special needs don't get the support at private schools and they don't have to, there's not funding for it. So there's just a lot that you learn as you're advocating and it, it needs to be on a bigger level. We have to do more. I think you don't know that I just got uh, training for the magistrates as well. So the magistrate is that last kind of level. And so those lawyers are donating their time. They might not be able to recognize autism. They're donating their time. They're they're doing the, the night shift, if you will. The, the deputy comes in and they're like the last checkbox, but they don't have training on autism. So 
we met with district county eight councilmen and we're going to train the magistrates now and it's just been like really amazing to get the momentum around doing this work because it is so important it really yeah. is yeah, you hit on a lot of good things. One being that when people think they're going to hire an advocate, they think like, oh, well, you attend IEP meetings. Like this time of year, like most of the year, like I attend fewer than one IEP meeting a week. You know what I mean? But but, but I'm busy the entire week and then some, you know, I'm busier, you know, well into the evenings most days. People don't understand that it's not you know, it's not just that. It is needed work. So thank you for jumping in. And you're really jumping in <laughs> doing a lot. So how do you, it's something I struggle with. Like you said, it's needed work. It's hard work and it's needed work. And this week, certain weeks kind of hit differently. This this week is hitting differently for me just because I it did just come out that the um, Elijah McLean story, as you know, the officer who killed him. He, for those of you who don't know the Elijah McLean story, um, I believe he was in Maryland. I'm not 100% sure. I think it was Baltimore, um, right? Was it Baltimore? I, I'm not entirely sure. A young man, early 20s with autism stopped. Um, young black man, I should say, because I do believe that's relevant. A young black man stopped. I think he was just walking home from somewhere and was on the spectrum, stopped by police and through a incredulous series of unfortunate events, he is deceased. And I believe it went from a taser to ketamine. It was the ketamine over overdose that eventually killed him that the paramedics gave him. But it, it resonates with me, obviously, because this is a population I'm passionate about helping and him being on the spectrum. But this week it was announced that the officer who killed him was reinstated and received $200,000 in back pay for the time that he's been suspended while the case was pending and charges were dismissed. So when you hear, I mean, and that's just one story, right? Like these yeah. stories, like people don't understand these stories happen all day, every day across this nation. Yeah. But when you're doing, when you're in the thick of it and you hear stories like that, or even stories that are very local to you that don't make the national conversation, how do you stay motivated and how do you stay positive? I think for me, especially with the police work, I've really worked on both sides. So I'm really working to build relationships with the police, which I think is really hard. There's a lot of fear I found for folks here, especially, and it could be everywhere, but I've noticed in San Antonio, there's fear around, fear police, of around what? just fear of connecting with the police, fear of calling the police, fear of, I get, I always hear they're going to call CPS, ADS. Like I just get all those, you know, I don't want my kid taken away from me. I don't want this to happen. And this is supposed to be a service to help us. But then you see these news examples and you're like, well, look, I get it. I don't want your child to end up deceased either. You know, we understand. And I think that I realized that a lot of what I'm doing on the other side is like, there's an outdoor theater called the Mission Marquee. It's a really old outdoor theater here in San Antonio. We're going to show the movie, Be Safe. We're inviting families. We're inviting as many different police precincts that want to come, the different substations, just to meet people. Because I think sometimes it's the one-on-one -on -one connection that can make all the difference. But if you just hear these stories, you want to give up. I think that it's, I, I understand the fear and I think it's completely relevant and right to be scared. I think that's okay. In fact, that's healthy because you want to protect. But I think also we're, we're missing some key training for families too on like, for example, in San Antonio, there's three different phone numbers to call. There's a smart call number that just gives you crisis support. There's the mental health team you can call, which has eight people for a shift of, for one shift, eight people, 
something billion million people in our city. So good luck if you get one of those when you call. And so there's also a non-emergency number. My client had called the non-emergency number. There weren't enough people on shift. So regular officers showed up. No training on mental health, right? So what do you do in that in that situation? I think there is still some, there's some education that can happen on the side of families too. Like if we call, what do we say? There's something around Texas called family violence. It's law because there's a lot of domestic violence in Texas, domestic abuse. So that a lot of times those calls are flagged as domestic abuse and their rule is remove the perpetrator because they're going to end up dead. They don't want the victim to end up dead. If it's a, a child that's having a meltdown and is breaking things, but it's just because they're trying to get regulated, that is totally different than someone who's abused, who's an abuser in a home. And the police can't make that distinction sometimes, right? They don't know. So there's just all these different pieces that I think you realize as you dig deeper. Like, I mean, I read the whole general general manual for the police in San Antonio. Like I literally combed through it being like, where is this bad for someone with autism? Where does this not make sense? Where is this going to be? Like just the language, there's so many things. I'm like, ah, there's a lot of things wrong with this. And so sometimes I just, I... I'm the kind of person that wants to dig. I want to dig in and learn. And I think that if we can find those pieces, it can keep us motivated to say, hey, if we can realize there's a smaller problem to solve, like what to say when you call, maybe that'll help quell some of the fear. That's great information. What are some challenges or misperceptions, misconceptions that you're running into from the police side of things when you meet with them, when when you're training with them and when you're having meetings with them? What are some things that you're like, oh, wow. I didn't realize they saw it that way, or I didn't realize they thought that. It's, well, it's interesting you bring this up because they actually invited us to something called the experience training. So I was able to shoot a taser. I had to work through these different scenarios where they had a full screen and there were people walking to me with weapons and I got to do this different kind of training to feel like it, what it feels like to be a police officer. And I'm coming as an educator background. I was like, ah, and it was an occupational therapist and someone else on my team were like, what are we doing? Why are we here? How is this, how is this going to help? But it did help because we asked questions. We saw that there's some robotic things that police do sometimes when they get in a certain mindset, they just go. They're like in their specific sort of like way that, hey, they have to protect the people around them. So there was like one of the scenarios was there was a person who had just been fired from a job. They had showed back up. They had their weapon. They were it was almost like they were going to possibly commit suicide. So they had the weapon out. And then I was I had to have my weapon drawn and say, you have to protect the public. What are you going to do? So I'm just watching like, well, I don't think he's going to do anything. And I'm, but right. Think of how scary this is. And I'm watching and I'm like, and then he goes into the building with the weapon. So then you're supposed to shoot right at this person. And I think, first of all, I would never want to be a police officer. I learned that day. And second of all, I learned that they have certain protocols that just a lot of us don't understand So in a way, there's just this like big riff. And also a lot of the background, the way police were trained is coming from history of slavery, is coming from history of like imprisonment. It's it's all like kind of slave labor. I I don't want to really dig into all that here, but it really is if you want to go do some research. And then you come to realize why people get sort of picked out the way they do. And, And then the robotic training is hard and I mean, I met a lot of police officers with heart. I'm working with ones that really care. Some of these cadets are like, my my sister's autistic, or I have this person in my family that has this, and, and they want to help. But then also when you get in that place where it's scary and it's robotic, that's when 
all bets are off, I feel like, and it's still hard. So we still have like a ton of work to do on both sides there. Switching gears a little bit, you've had some experiences and I don't expect, expect you to name names and all that, but you've also tagged, I mean, this is a lot in four years. I hope you're proud of yourself of what you've jumped <laughs> into literally in four years, but you've, you've supported a family through their fight against their church. And this came up for me yesterday because I'm working with doing some training for some Jewish synagogues next spring on issues, you know, related to this and kids being disruptive, still wanting to be a part of their religious community. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned or what you're doing or what you have done? Sure, sure. So I can, I could definitely talk about that. So I had a client who is also autistic and he loves this particular church. It's called the San Fernando Cathedral. I don't mind saying the name. It's beautiful. And it really was a connecting place for him. He went there to find Jesus. And he he really believed like that was Jesus' home. And the, sort of the concrete belief that he had when he would go to this place. He would wear a hat for sensory issues, for sensory needs. It kind of gave him that pressure and a little bit of the a little bit of the support to like not be looking at everything, just not so overwhelming. And one of the ushers asked him to remove it and then got really angry, said some really bad words about disrespecting God and all these things that my client didn't really even understand, but the mom did. And she, and they were escorted out. It was a Palm Sunday and they were told not to go back. And a lot of different things happened. Did try to file a complaint with department of justice. I knew I'm like, yeah, there's no jurisdiction in a church. And I knew that, but I still was like, well, we can still write it. It can still be on record. We did file police charges. We went to the police to file charges against the usher who did like smack a phone. She was trying to record and he smacked it out of her hand. So that was technically assault. So we had a case there, but it ended up being closed. And then we went to mediation after that. We did contact a special, a disability lawyer. He was amazing. He'd done some work before with churches, but Catholic church, Catholic schools. So he had actually already had made some headway there. He had won a case. So really excited about working with him. And it was expensive for my client. I helped um, gather a lot of information. We met with the school to get feedback, you know, having some of those arts to get all that professional information about how his behavior had deteriorated since he wasn't able to go to church and what that meant for him. And it was really just, we had a lot of momentum. And then the media, the mediation really fell flat. Like, you know, we lost and losing is okay. You may lose, but we just felt so deflated because really when, when the priests, when they came to talk to us, they, the last words were, well, if they, you know, if they were at the Alamo chapel, they would have taken their hat off. And we were like, just, you were like, wow, this really didn't mean anything to you. Like you did not get anything out of this. And it's, it's hard when you feel like you're hitting a wall, like it, man. And just, I felt bad for my clients. I mean, we had worked for a while to pull this case together and it just didn't go our way. And I think sometimes with advocacy work, you realize it it may not go your way today, but it may go your way if you keep going. And that's another thing you have to remember about advocacy work. Like just don't give up. Maybe the next time that priest sees a person or something else happens with the archdiocese or something else happens in another church, they heard about your story and then they they remember. It's like you're planting seeds sometimes and you have to keep that spirit up, you know, like, hey, this fight is worth it. It just might be hitting walls for a few times. Right. US. It is. And as I, I, I did a video call yesterday with the woman I'm working with and I said, if you Google you know, autistic child kicked out of church, you'd be surprised at how many hits you're going to get. It's just article after article after article. 
And, you know, it's just happening in, you know, San Antonio and all across the nation in these little churches that people don't even understand that, you know, in the bigger, because there's so much noise thrown at us each day. Like we can't know all the things, but it is, it is a problem, you know, as far as not being included and our kids have a right to worship just like any other part of, you know, participate in any other part of society. But unfortunately they don't really necessarily have a right as it turns out, you know, that's what what we learned from some of these cases is that yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't seen that way, you know, as, right. as the the right to worship in the way you wish. And so. they do have, they do have that, the power there, which is okay. But I think we can make changes the more and more we call attention to it. We do the trainings like you're going to do and just become aware and it really can, we can make an impact. We just have to not give up. All right. So let's one final topic before we wrap up. You know, I, I just said a couple of minutes ago, you have really jumped in in four years and done a lot. So to the parent out there who's listening and they listen to me because their kid has an IEP and they're hoping for IEP advice or, or whatever, and they maybe want to dabble in advocacy, but they think like, oh, well, I could never do that. Like, I could never do a police training. I could never take on the Catholic Church. You know what I mean? I can't do that. What advice do you have to them to to getting involved on on any level? I think... For me, I'm in a couple of professional organizations. I'll throw out COPA and TOPA. That really helped me just be aware of what's happening, you know, kind of for all advocates. So, and it's like $90 a year. It's not even that expensive just to be aware of what's happening. I also, I love to connect. I'm a connector person. I'm a networking person. So I just, I show up places, talk about what I do. And you never know, like I have great relationships with lawyers. You just have to have the conversation sometimes like, hey, this, you know, what, what have you seen around this? Or, you know, a lot of times if you bring it up, oh, I know somebody who has this different disability and they couldn't get this thing or that thing. And a lot of times you're putting people in touch with resources, just that connection they'll remember. I feel like I'm just like a resource connector half the time. And I'm sure you get that feeling too. But I think for me, just put yourself out there. I had to believe I could do stuff that I didn't think I could do. And I, but I've done it. So it's like, well, I could, I just had to do it. And one thing I will say about being my own business is I do have the peace and the time to do the research. Like if I wasn't sure about something, I would do the research and talk to people that I knew and and try to gather information before I said yes to some of the harder things. And also, if if it seems too big for you, pull in somebody else, you know, contact another organization and say, hey, I had this opportunity. Can you help me support me? Because everybody wants these people want to make change. And there's a lot of grant money coming out now for training around autism and things because it's one in 36. Like the statistics have just really um, skyrocketed and neurodivergence in in general. So the, the money is out there. The funds out there. The people are out there. You just have to connect and kind of put yourself out there and definitely professional organizations and I mean, schools too. Schools, it's weird because advocate, you feel like you're against schools. But honestly, some of my best resources have come from some of those special education coordinators at schools who I've built good relationships with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is important to remain collaborative in all of it. Like as, right. for as adversarial as, as the- It can be. It can be. It's, it's the relationships matter. That's funny that you say that about, you know, having the choice. Because when I, I was thinking back to my the first time I had to meet with the Department of Justice about they were doing an investigation on like I was working for I was still working for the agency at that time. And like my boss just told me, like, OK, you need to go into Philly and go to such and such place on this day and you're going to meet with the Department of Justice. And I was like, I like I didn't have a choice. I couldn't research. I mean, I, I, of course, did research what I needed to research. But 
yeah, there was no choice. It was just, I was just thrown into it. So that's when people go, well, how did you get started? And I'm like, actually early on, I didn't have as much choice as I would have liked. It was, if you want this job, you know, this is what you're going to do. Okay. So thank you so much. Where can people find you? Oh yeah. Familyadventures.com. Family, A-D-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com. Also I'm on Instagram. My handle's at Family Adventures and I share a lot of content there too. Yeah. I'm on Facebook, family, everything, family adventures, Facebook, all the, all the stuff. Yeah. It's Family Adventures with two D's and adventures. Mm -hmm. I will include the links in the show notes if you're listening and that's it. Thank you so much for being on today. And thank you, Lisa, for everything. You don't understand how many tools you gave me in the beginning to feel competent enough to do it. So I want to say thank you for real. And that's it. Well, but you know what? And that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on is to say like, you know what? You can be, and I don't want to say just a mom because moms rule the world essentially. But, you know, for, again, for that mom who is in my audience thinking I can't do that. It's like, yes, you can. And that's why I do all these articles and provide all this stuff because we're, foot soldiers in this army and there aren't enough of us. There aren't enough people in this fight. And that's what we do need more. I spend a lot of time and I, I, again, friend of the agency I was, I was working with yesterday. I said, I spend a lot of time just validating parents that like, no, this is the system. Like, this is, you're right. Like, cause they, like you're going through this stuff and you think, well, that can't be right. Well, that can't be right. And it's like, no, that, that's the system. That's as it's designed, like, like, cause this isn't available or that's not available or there's no funding for this. And there's no, you know, no, and there's no way for us to apply for that. And they, they call me thinking that I'm going to have this magic way for them to get whatever it is. And I'm like, Thank you for listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate, Lisa Leitner. We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. From self-care tips to common IEP mistakes, there's even more to explore. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast and subscribe to never miss an episode. Until next time, don't IEP alone and you don't have to.